everyone. Welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation Podcasts. Today's episode, we will be looking at what's possible and the art of the next best step. I am delighted to welcome Dave Gray, CEO of Explain Design Consultancy, co-founder of Board Thing, and author and co-author of several books. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Dave, you've been studying this inflection point that you feel we're at, and you have been studying it for some time, so much so that you set up a new school dedicated to digital and digital ways of thinking, working, and being. And I'm being very, very careful about being working and thinking. And you've called that the school of the possible. You know, as the founder, you're also a researcher and a teacher and a practical business entrepreneur. But, you know, being into design, one would suppose curiosity, different perspectives, a thirst for something different, more adaptable, more fit for purpose. So you call yourself a possibilitarian. Can we start there? What is a possibilitarian? And what is the school of the possible? Well, that's a great question. Possibilitarian we tend to go through life. We have routines, we have habits, mm. we have routines, we have patterns that we play out every day. And a lot of these things we kind of run on autopilot. Yeah. And autopilot's great because it means we can run our routines without and think about other things. We can mm. think about the first meeting while we're on our way to work and we don't have For to example. focus all the time on, mm. you know, which turn to make where. So autopilot is our friend. When things are going great, when things mm. are working, it frees up your mind to do other things. Mm. However, what autopilot does is distract you from the present moment. And mm. if you're in a world that, or a situation that you're not happy about, mm. and you run on autopilot, you're probably going to continue to create the situation Mm. or co-create the situation that you're not happy about. Mm. And a possibilitarian is someone, because we can't change the past, right? The past is done. No. The uh, And the future doesn't exist yet. So the only doors to creating new possibilities that are available to us are in the present moment. Mm. And to the degree that you are on autopilot or you're wa- working through your day by working through your routines – you're not going to notice those mm. cracks in the system, mm. those crevices, those affordances, those doorways to possibility that are actually around you every minute of every day, all of the time. Mm. A possibility is only, you know, is only a possibility. You, you don't know if something is actually possible or not until you walk through that door and yeah. try something. Do you think that's worse with digital, Dave, this distraction of being on autopilot all the time? We just get overloaded with information. Well, it's very easy to do that. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. The point is what a possibilitarian is doing is practicing the art of being acutely tuned in to the present moment Mm. and how opportunities might arise in that moment. For example, you have a conversation with your boss. Hmm. let's say a difficult conversation. And if you go into that conversation with a preconceived notion about what's possible, you're probably going to have a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, absolutely. We often don't ask for things that we expect a no to get a no to. Hmm. We often won't explore things that we don't think are going to lead anywhere. But the fact is that we really don't know 
And oftentimes it's our limiting beliefs about ourselves or about the systems or about the world that is creating a kind of an invisible barrier, a, a fictional impossible where there actually are possibilities. Mm. I believe that um, there's an art to this. It's an art and a science, probably a little bit of both. Mm. That's what we're exploring in the School of the Possible. Yeah, I find that fascinating, the art of the possible. And also because, as you say, we just sit in the systems that keep our self-limiting beliefs going. And, of course, that's familiar to us. So, you know, we are our self-fulfilling prophecies. So unless we step back and, and do something about that and step into the present moment, then you're right, we may not even see the doorways of the possible, never mind walk through them. I'm really interested because I, I think education is also at a tipping point. There's institutions, educational institutions, about how they teach and what they teach to equip leaders and people for tomorrow. So it's interesting to hear a little bit more about the backstory of the school of the possible and what lens you're looking at education through. Yeah, well, I'm not sure that even school is the right word, mm. but my background might mm. help to understand. I went to art school and art school is different than, from a lot of other kinds of uh, schools. Mm. Number one, if you graduate from, I don't know, medical school or law school, there's people out there waiting to hire you. There's a career path. There's a kind of a structured set mm. of boxes and ways that you can fit into society that are kind of pre-planned and predetermined. When you get out of art school, there's nobody waiting to yeah. hire you. There's there's no career path. It's, oh, okay, mm. now you're in debt and now you get to figure it out. Also, when you're in art school, there's a a focus on originality that you don't see in a lot of other types of education. You can't just show up to class and be smart. You mm. have to have created something that you're yes. putting on the wall. It has to be something completely unique and original. And so the process of teaching creativity mm. is kind of interesting because an, you, you can't be an expert in something that doesn't exist yet. You can't really be an expert in possibility. Mm. And, you know, my definition of creativity has expanded because uh, having started companies, having launched products and so forth, creativity is for me, not just making a marks on a piece of paper or making a painting, but it's mm. painting in reality, yeah. creating and imagining something and making it become real. Mm. So how do you teach that? Well, <laughs> mm. uh, you don't. It, mm. What you you don't teach in the sense that most people think about teaching. You don't you don't show up in a room and sit in a chair and listen to an expert lecture about possibility for mm-hmm. an hour, although we may be doing that today. <laughs> what you do is you show up and someone is there who has made the structure and the space for an exploration and they're mm-hmm in a way like the leader of a, or captain of a ship or mm. someone who's going to take you on a journey, but we don't know what we're going to find. There's no promises. It's kind of like getting, if you get on the boat with uh, Ernest Shackleton, there's yeah. no promise that we're going to get where we are aiming at, mm. but we do have a question. We have a direction. We have a, a journey. We have a hopes and expectations and aspirations for what we might find. 
Mm. But the, the history of discovery is the history of people who were searching for one thing and found something completely because, different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and the fact is that there's a good chance you're not going to find what you're looking for. But if you're not looking for something, then mm. you're not going to find anything. Mm. It's kind of like if you don't buy a ticket, you can't win the lottery. Absolutely. It doesn't mean that you because you buy a ticket, you will win the lottery. Yeah. But this is what what is uh, fascinating and, and fun for me about creating a school to explore things that don't yet exist, that are not even true yet. Mm. They're only hypotheses mm. is that and maybe a, a laboratory might be a better word for it, but it's primarily a community of people who are focused on trying to understand what is possible in their worlds and supporting each other through this journey. Because mm. as an entrepreneur yourself, I'm mm. sure you recognize it can be lonely sometimes. Yeah, and, and scary. I mean, as you were talking, and I was scary. thinking, you know, stepping into that space can be exciting. But I also know from my own experience that it can also feel a little bit overwhelming, a little bit scary. I'm interested in how people react to stepping into that space intentionally and just seeing what emerges. I mean, it's it's what all organizations are trying to do. If you look at their innovation processes and, you know, letting things emerge and have a different type of leadership. But the reality is really quite uncomfortable sometimes, isn't it? Well, yeah, there's a couple of different ways to look at that, right? Mm. What's yeah. an adventure? <laughs> if you know what's going to happen, it then it's not an adventure, is it? <laughs> no, not for me. No, it's not. Correct. Right. And so uh, what I try and coach people towards is yeah you can i mean it could be that it's going to be a horror movie <laughs> but you know without any risk without any danger there's no adventure there's no mm -hmm. learning if you're going to stay on a path that is predictable and certain you're not going to get surprised no well, some people say they just they don't like surprises they don't yeah. want surprises <laughs> yeah. and i would just say well stay away from my school then. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's interesting to see though, what trends you're seeing from people in, in organizations and what, you know, what type of organizational design you're seeing as we shift. Cause if I look at, you know, the blueprint for a connected company and, and this sort of more agile, fluid, emergent way of working, we're not there yet clearly, but do you see people more willing, less willing what are you seeing in that space? Well, I'm not working with organizations anymore. I'm working with individuals. I think organizations, they're in an environment today where if they don't take risks, mm. they're probably going to become obsolete. Yeah. But it's also, uh, you know, scary. The Most of the people that I'm working with are looking at uh, alternatives to working in their organizations. organizations. Yeah. <laughs> they are thinking about, okay, so what's possible for me. Mm. And I think that's, that's kind of a big theme. And that's why the school of the possible is not really aimed at organizations. It's aimed at individuals. And I guess, you know, as an individual, you have a couple of choices unless you're independently wealthy or you have mm. your own farm and you could farm your, all your own food. You are dependent on somehow finding a way to make a living. Mm. And there's two choices that you can make and how that you do that. One is you can try and find a job, find a company where you fit in, where you belong, where mm -hmm. you feel like you are aligned with their values or you find a good fit, or you can go out on your own and 
upgrade a customer. Hmm. Now, a company is always going to want you to know how you fit into their system. They're going to want to round off your edges or square off or however you want. They're going to want to shave you so you can fit into their system. But a customer is going to want to know what's unique about you, what's Mm. special, what's different, what makes you special. And if you want to explore how you fit into the world, then by all means, go work for a company. But if you want, if you're really interested in exploring what's unique about you, Mm. what's special about you, then I think you should learn how to create a customer. And that's a lot of what I'm finding that I'm teaching in the school or Mm. that that a lot of the explorations are around how do you create a customer, which is a, a step on the path to creating your life. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I think, you know, it also brings me back to the idea of different ways of sort of thinking and working and the whole visual aspect. So I first discovered your work through game storming and Mm. the whole visual thinking and the gamification of visualizing things more simply. And I'm a big believer in in the power of visual thinking. And I know, you know, teams use it to unlock creativity and potential. And but how did you get into that? Dave, into this visual thinking is my first question. I'll ask my second one later, otherwise it's going to become too complex. But how did you get into this visualization aspect? Well, I was always a kid who was drawing. Uh, Mm. It's part of how I think. Of course, you're an artist. (laughs) Yeah. But the way that game storming came about is, you know, when I, uh, in early 90s, when I started my company, when Mm. I started trying to figure out how to create a customer. So what happens is you discover one thing and it leads you to another pro every solution to every problem is usually another problem, right? Mm. So when we solved the problem of how to create a customer, we started out saying, we're going to draw, help you draw your complex issue Mm. so you can get better understanding of it. And it became clear that the customers would come to us and they would say, well, I don't know what to draw. Well, we, okay. So now we have a whole new problem, how to discover what is the complexity that we need to be drawing. And it turns out that that knowledge usually did not exist inside one person. It existed separately inside of a number of people's minds Hmm. and game storming as a toolkit came about as a solution to that problem Hmm. is how do we get a group of people together? to have the conversations that helps them and also draw the pictures Mm. that helps them get alignment about what is the problem that we're trying to resolve here? What is the complexity? What is the situation? What is it that we Mm. want to achieve? What are the steps that we're going to take to get there? All that stuff had to be elicited. It had Mm. to be somehow pulled out of different people's brains in such a way that they could get aligned and understand each other. So Mm. picture making was part of it. Working with sticky notes and whiteboards was a part of it. And it was really a matter of trying to figure out, I sort of did this kind of intuitively, but it was, Mm. how do you turn that into a, if you want to scale an organization, you have to figure out what is your magic and how can you turn that into a kind of a science or a recipe book for other people Mm. to follow. Was that a taster for them of visualizing doorways of possibility or were you more upstream than that? Mm, For who? For the organizations Uh, and the teams working on it. 
Yeah. Well, what happens when you run any kind of a consulting firm or mm. even even a, any kind of a service business, mm. you find that you tend to have more expertise about certain topics than often your customers do. They know they mm. have a problem, yeah. but they don't exactly know what it is. But most people will not go out to knock on doors to try and solve a problem until they already have a solution in mind. Mm which can be a problem, right? If they, if they've defined the problem in a way that is uh, not going to be conducive to success or mm. so, yeah, I mean, I've, I think games terming has definitely my best selling book. It's been phenomenally mm. well received. It's a great, it's a recipe book. book. It's a toolkit, you mm. know, for people to help them explore possibilities and sometimes it can, I think teams can get a lot accomplished on their own with it. Part of the philosophy there is that when you have a facilitator in a meeting, you might call in someone or, you know, most of the time you can't, you're, there's no budget for a facilitator. You're just mm -hmm. kind of running the meeting. And the yeah. person who happens to be the best at facilitation is often called on to, to facilitate the meeting. Mm -hmm. And it just so happens that just because you're good at facilitating doesn't mean you don't want to participate. Yeah. And there's a degree to which it's hard for someone who's facilitating to participate. Mm. And part of the insight in game storming is that when you're playing a game of Monopoly, everyone can participate. Even the banker, there might be a little bit of extra work that goes into counting the money and so mm. forth, but everyone can play. And the facilitation, you don't require a facilitator to play most board games. And mm. that's because the, the rules are kind of built in. They're understood and advanced. We don't have to have go asking someone a question, can we do this? Do we mm. do that? It's kind of like defined all that stuff. So game storming is really a way to free up and selfishly, because I was often the facilitator, mm -hmm. free up the person mm. from mm. a lot of that extra cognitive work that goes mm. into facilitation and kind of distributed into a set of rules and a, a game board sometimes, mm. some kind of system that allows everyone to be a part of it. Because do you think that the more you do those type of things, the more they get put back into the sort of status quo of the way we do things around here? So the first time, the second time, the mm -hmm. third time, and then suddenly we just step back into we're going to game storm, but in the way we've always game stormed. Do, do you see that happening? And is that about bringing out new visual toolkits to, to surprise and break that cycle? Or is it more about the way people are thinking? I've been very pleasantly surprised. I think that game storming, it was designed to be super simple. I mean, we were, mm. we were flying into someone else's office. We didn't want to be carrying a lot of equipment. Mm. We designed something that would work with pretty much anything that could probably be found in the office supply cabinet where mm. we were going or that we could pick up at an mm. office supply store from on the way from the airport. But it is itself a kind of a transformative cultural mm. phenomenon in that, you know, when you start game storming, you're doing some things differently. You're number one, you're, you're not just sitting in a meeting. Mm. You don't have your laptops, or if you do have them, you have to put, fold them up because you need the table for other things. Mm. You're not talking about work in the meeting. You're accomplishing work in the meeting. So it's productive. You're using the walls. You're using your body. You're, you're thinking with your body as well as your mind. It's almost like a group of people working together on 
building something out of blocks or something mm. like that. You have mm. it changes the way that people interact. Mm. And it also makes one of the problems with office work is that you don't see what is in other people's heads. Of course. You don't, you know, you can you can look at a, a room full of people working on computers and they could be doing anything. They could be designing code, they could be a help desk, they could be making a magazine. There's just mm. no way to know because no. you're just looking at a bunch of people sitting on computers. When they get into a room and they start using sticky notes and drawing and other things, suddenly the work becomes visible, mm. becomes shareable. And I ha had at least one customer measure the success of their innovation initiative by how, how many sticky notes they could see on the walls. And, you know, to the mm. degree to which work becomes visible, it becomes shareable. It becomes, what are people doing over there? Uh, how come they're having fun and we aren't? And mm. it sort of becomes more, I guess you could say viral for, for mm. lack of a better word. Yes. You can always, you know, you know, hit a plateau. I think, you know, if people are, you know, once they have gotten the habit of using walls and whiteboards and sticky notes and so forth, then yeah, you can always get hit a plateau and get in a mm. rut and need to find mm. the next level. But I would still say that is the minority. Mm, yeah. And, and how, do you, how do you think visual things, toolkits or packs of cards or visualizing things helps us reframe our beliefs and therefore the way we think? So my whole career has been kind of focused mm. on you know, helping people take things that are very complex, abstract, hard to communicate, hard to understand, and making them more tangible and real with pictures. So mm. I've spent a lot of time thinking about that, a lot of time working on that. And a lot of the work that I have done over the years is about starting with just a conversation and a group of people mm. and trying to figure out how to make that information tangible and real. So I've spent a lot of time making the, what I would call information landscapes, mm. which are, or visual explanations of things. And there, what I found was there's a moment in this process of discovery where if you're successful, things just snap into place. And mm. uh, there's a moment where things go from being very fuzzy to very focused. And the process of getting there is just a process of generating a lot of different napkin sketches and exploring a lot of different landscapes and uh, metaphors. And mm. uh, you know, when you have uh, you're exploring something new, you know, invention, science, anything that's pushing the boundaries of the possible is always ahead of language. Yeah, you don't have absolutely. the words <laughs> yeah. yet. Images are kind of a universal language that can help you explore things that you don't have words for yet. Mm. I'm always fascinated by what you do because it's not who I am. I like visual thinking. I don't know how to draw. I don't I don't feel like I'm very artistic and although it really speaks to me, so it's really interesting to speak to people who have that type of brain. Who are you? It's interesting because when I was I stayed in an organization for 20 years and it was like, "Oh no, you can't do this, you can't do that." And I used to push boundaries all the time. And then when I stepped out of the organization because I got bored of the big machine, I started creating, Dave, it was really interesting. And I, I discovered, you know, I started really playing with things like game store. And then I started creating programs and a playbook and things that, but I got someone else to draw it because I'm still in this self-limiting <laughs> belief of I'm not an artist and I don't know how to draw. Yeah. And I just love the idea of simplifying complexity. And I always say to myself, oh, I wish I could draw properly because, you know, I've done a few graphic facilitation things just to try and 
be able to draw, but I'm, I always feel a little bit aggrieved that I just can't translate visually what what's in my head. So I was really well. That's because we, <laughs> so we could talk about that if you want. Yeah, I could tell you why. Go on. It's because the drawing is not something that happens by translating what's in your head onto a piece of paper. That's not uh-huh. what it is. It's a conversation between what's in your head and what you can make on the piece of paper. So that's why drawing is also can be surprising. So I would say that's the reason people quit drawing is they say, well, this isn't what I want. They look at it and they make a drawing and they say that isn't, that this isn't Mm. what it's not what I see or it's not what I'm like. But the fact is that the drawing is, it's an independent, it's its own thing. It has its own existence. It doesn't have to be. I mean, why is Picasso so on so many walls? You know, Mm. it's like not because he's making, he was making things that imitated Mm. anything. They were constructions. But it's interesting because that's my, that's the formatting, isn't it? I've never deconstructed my belief about it has to be, it has to be translating what I'm trying to say or what's in my head. That's a really interesting point. Have you ever done squiggle birds? No. Do you have a piece of paper handy? Yes. <laughs> All right. Do you have share uh, screen sharing turned yep. on? Yep. Let me share my screen with you. Now you can look down on my. Um... Ah, yes. So you got a pen? Yes. And a piece of paper? Yes. All right. What I want you to do is just make some squiggles. I'm squiggling. Okay. Okay. Now you don't, they don't have to look like anything, right? They're just squiggles. All right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Now we're going to turn all these squiggles into birds. This is something I learned from my uh, friend of mine named Chris Glenn. So we're going to put a beak on and an eye and a couple of feet like that. Oh my goodness. I'm seeing birds. <laughs> yeah. Are you, are you making some birds? Yeah. Okay. Squiggle. Oh, and uh, if you want to, you can give them a tail. Sometimes we can give them a tail. I don't think any of my any of these here need a tail yet. Sometimes you can give them a tail, right? Yeah, it's starting to look a bit like a mouse, but <laughs> I'm so I'm just following your hand. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is my experience of school of possible. Hang on. <laughs> I guess yeah. So uh, hey. you, did you make some birds? Yeah, lots. All right. Let's see. Hold on. Let me see. Uh, I can't see them. Uh, oh, there. Oh, no. It's like, it's all, they're all, oh, there we go. Yeah. Oh, they're lovely. Beautiful. Okay. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> what did Brilliant. you, what did you learn, Susie? What did you just learn? I just learned that I could draw. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> birds. If you'd have asked you me to draw, draw a bird, I wouldn't have been able to. I learned <laughs> that it wasn't the process that I thought it was. I learned that it wasn't a cognitive process that I could figure out. And that I should, you know, just just following what you're asking me to do without trying to figure it out. That was really helpful. Go. And I've got well, five, let me, uh, five birds. Let, let, <laughs> okay, let me just share some additional thoughts with you. So our brains are pattern finding. Finding machines. Pattern making. <laughs> they will find a face in a wall socket, right? Uh, we will find a face in a clock. We'll find a, a giant person in a tower you know and that's this maybe a big secret to drawing is you have to trust other people's brains to fill it in the mind will fill it in what is a bird 
Well, mm. birds is kind of like a, a fluffy mess of things where you, there's a beak and a and an eye, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. What is a bird? A bird is just kind of like it's an asterisk in the sky. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm presuming now, see, now I'm I'm presuming I could just see what happens, do squiggles and see what happens and do other things now and just. Uh, well, it was a game I used to play with my dad. He would make, <laughs> a, he would make a, a shape and it would be. And think about like, so what you're doing with squiggle birds is very much like what you're doing when you lay on your back and you look up at the clouds. With and you're got a friend yes. next to you, and you're saying, "I see a crocodile." Do you see the yes. crocodile? Yes, I play that with my son. Yes. <laughs> there you go. So you are drawing. You're just drawing in the clouds. You haven't started drawing on paper yet. Oh wow! You're already drawing in the clouds. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. I'm actually inspired now to to try my hand at, at something else. I'm going to share with you. I have a little drawing course. Cool. A little online drawing course, and you could share this with your um. I will do, and um, I will definitely going to have uh, people. I'm, I'm just going to share with you right now, and it's like a little visual thinking course. It's online. It's totally free. It's like, you know, it starts with the squiggle birds, and it's got like uh, five little twenty minute videos that kind of take you from there to wherever you want to, you know, however far along that path you want to go. Brilliant. So I'm just going to drop the link in here. Yeah, and it's super fun, and it's not, it doesn't feel like work. Yeah, <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to try it. I can't get over how easy that felt. Thank you, Dave. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I'm going to try and discover discover what I can draw. How fun! Okay, well, I'm so glad I was able to. I, it was a privilege to be the one who could introduce <laughs> you to this. Yes, journey. thank you. We always understand anything new in terms of what we already know. Yes. So. RFID codes are mm. these radio codes that you can use to mark products and scan them with the, you know, you can scan mm. a whole warehouse at one go. Mm. Well, it's technically nothing like a barcode. It couldn't be more different than a barcode. It's not, a, it's something that the, it's not visual. It's not, it's used as radio, but uh, in terms of the function it fulfills, when why we worked with the team that was developing this, that one of the insights was that, well, if we could explain to people that this is the next generation of the barcode, this is what comes next after the barcode, it becomes easier for people to understand. It becomes mm -hmm. easier for them to put their brain around. Just like email is really not that much like physical mail, but yeah. it's the next generation of mail. Yeah. And just talking about that, I mean, we were talking before the show about AI and generative AI. And, you know, I have to ask the question, what what is generative AI going to bring to this, to what you do, but also to education? Great question. Nobody knows the answer to that yet, no. uh, but it is a great question for a possibilitarian to think about. <laughs> it feels clear to me that it is, this is a transformative, it's a disruptive technology. It's as disruptive as the graphical user interface mm. or, or uh, the web. It's going to enable all kinds of things. Mm. But I think one of the most interesting to me is that it's going to be a super empowering force multiplier to anyone who's operating as an individual. It's going to be about as close as you can get to kind of owning your own factory and production team and system. And I think it's going to enable what's going to be interesting about it is how many people 
will start looking around and think, well, why do I need a company to do all the things that I want? Why do I need to work at Mm. this job if I can do everything that they can do? Why am I here? Why why don't I just go out and do this for myself? I think there's going to be, just like with the internet, there's going to be mm-hmm. a lot of institutions that we kind of take for granted that we need them, yep. whether it's banks or, you know, mm-hmm. you know, what have you, that we may discover maybe we don't need a bank. Maybe we don't need a credit card. Maybe we don't need, who knows? You know, we discovered that we don't, you know. With Airbnb, we discovered that we don't necessarily need hotels. No. With uh, Uber, we discovered mm. that maybe we don't need taxis. You know, who knows what we're going to discover? And I think there's a group of people who are, you know, very fearful that we're going to lose our jobs. And I think that's probably true. But also, let's think about the alternative. You know, mm. in in my country in 1850, that's not that long ago. It's like a hundred and 70 years ago, mm. 80% of the population was working on a farm. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, now let's say we have maybe seven, 5% maybe of people who are mm. working on a farm. A lot of that stuff's become automated. We're not sitting around going, where's all the farm jobs? No one yes. really wants to go back <laughs> to working on a farm. Mm. No one who is like, you know, got a career working at a magazine or whatever. So I think a lot of the stuff that the, a lot of the jobs that we're going to lose are going to be replaced by new jobs. Mm-hmm. And these are the jobs that we can't imagine yet. We yeah. can't even, you know, we can't train for them yet because mm-hmm. we don't know what they're going to be. And maybe that's a good reason for there to be a school of the possible to try and you know, say, okay, well, mm-hmm. what can we do? What is possible? Mm-hmm. And what's what's your vision, therefore, for the school of the possible, whether you keep the word school or not? You know, if if I take you to the end of 2025, what's your vision for that? Well, school is, a, I, I think of a school as a school of thought, uh, mm. philosophy, um, as well as a, a place. I mean, I'm a big fan of creating the product or the service that you would buy if it mm. existed. And mm. for me, that's what the school of the possible is. It's about... Where's the club that I want to hang out in? Mm. Who are the people that I want to spend time with? Who's the community that I want to invest my time and energy in? And for me, it's this Mm. idea of, yeah, I want to be surrounded by creative people who are not just talking about stuff, but who are making things, doing things, making things. That's that's the art school Mm. in me. I want an art school for the much broader definition of creativity than that includes this idea of creating a customer, which I did not learn in art school, (laughs) but that is a a kind of creativity that opens all the other doors. Mm, mm. And just talking about creativity, what do you think is the most transformative thing that you've done so far in your quest, Dave, to open up the possible? To look at the What's, different discoveries that you, that one can make, particularly now in the digital age where things are evolving very rapidly thanks to technology. Well, my most interesting recent discovery is that, you know, we talk a lot about people's attention being splintered and how, you know, we don't, we really only have seconds of attention that, mm. that what I found is that in some cases, the opposite is true. People 
want to invest their time and energy in forging deep connections with other people in building shared energy toward purposeful activities that people are they're frustrated with all that splintering they mm. are they're not happy with Facebook or LinkedIn or any of these mm. other things anymore. They are craving something uh, more intimate, mm. and they are they are ready to make time for it. Mm. Mm. And you do that in the school of possible, don't you? You have like the campfire and collaboratories and yeah. We, I mean, pretty much if you're going to engage with, so it's a virtual because mm. um, that was an artificial constraint that I introduced, mainly because all of my people that I want to work with are distributed all over the oh, world. world. <laughs> so it's um, based on my experience, the maximum amount of time that you can really get people connected and focused and energy for time together is 90 minutes, but mm. there's nothing that you can do with us that requires less than 90 minutes. Okay. <laughs> it's like a, we're working in 90 minute chunks of time with groups of people who are ready and willing to invest that kind of mm. time. And themselves and each other i suppose there's such a thing as a you know 90 minute webinar that you're you're kind of checking in and you're you're checking your email and you're listening to it with half your brain but you can't show up to the school the possible that way because you know you're going to get called on people can, yeah. you know you're you're going to be engaged in conversation you're not it's not like a movie that or yeah. a, you know not like a ted talk that you can just kind of sit back and turn it on and watch it it's interactive yeah, and it's about contributing, as not just listening, as you say. Yeah. yeah. Dave, would you have a last call to action for our listeners around becoming a possibilitarian or opening their minds to the doorways that may exist in their environment, whatever that is? I think if you're happy with everything that's going on in your life, then keep doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you feel like you would like to see change, then turn off your autopilot. You know, <laughs> we're all kind of like in the world, as we walk around the world, we're all in this kind of like, we're like blindfolded dancers. We're dancing with each other and we're, you know, in a very mm -hmm. choreographed uh, sequence. If you take the blindfold off, which is your autopilot and you, you step away from the choreographed dance or activity that you know you're involved in it's not just you that's going to change you're going to throw off all the other people who are dancing with you you know this is why you know someone sitting on the front seat of a bus or someone going to sit at a lunch counter where they're not supposed to sit can mm. be so transformative to society and it's like this is why i mean small moves can have tremendously big impacts when you go off the script that's my, I guess my call to action is if you're not happy with the system or the situation that you're in to turn off your autopilot, disrupt it, you mm. know, be the cog that's going the opposite direction, uh, disrupt the routine. You don't even have to know what to do. Just do mm. something different and mm. see what happens. I like that. I'm going to leave our listeners with taking the blindfold off. I like that analogy, <laughs> turning the autopilot <laughs> off. Dave, where can people find out more about you, the School of the Possible, what you do? Schoolthepossible.com. Okay, excellent. I'll put that in the in the show notes. And can they connect with you on LinkedIn or? Yeah, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. I think I'm just Dave Gray on LinkedIn. Okay, super. Thank yeah. you. Thanks Thank very you. much. Thanks for a great conversation. My pleasure. <laughs>